Welcome to Planet Geo, the podcast where we talk about our amazing planet, how it works, and why it matters to you. Are you ready, Jesse Rymink? Are you ready to do this now? <laughs> you seem like you're down in the jib. Uh, you I'm ready. pick it up a notch. I'm, okay? all, I'm always go. ready. Yeah. Oh, I don't know about that. I am always ready, sir. No, don't call me sir. How you doing, Dr. Rymink? Mr. Bullheis, what's up, man? Oh, yeah, it's been a long, <laughs> long time since you've ever called me that. <laughs> I know, it's been, I mean, we might be going on a decade since I've called you Mr. Bullheis, man. I bet you longer, back. I bet you longer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As soon as you got out, you were like, oh, I can call him whatever I want now. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's Chris, it's Hey Baldy, yep, yep. all those things, yeah. That's right, <laughs> yeah. All those really original digs on me, that's right. You've probably never heard that before, huh? No, never. Never been called Mr. Clean, Stone Cold, <laughs> Baldy. Never never got any of that stuff at all, no, ever. No, no, no. I'm nope. sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Hey, today we are continuing on. It's been a while since we talked about our Plate Tectonic series last. I mean, we're going back a couple months now in season two. Now we're in season three, and we're just kind of launching season three here of Planet Geo, which is really exciting. Yeah. Uh, but we're revisiting some questions, some plate tectonic questions that are under the sort of moniker, Chris, that you came up with, that is, do you know plate tectonics? Or so, do you know plate tectonics more accurately? What was the origin of this? The origin was just talking to students. And they, as soon as I said, we're going to get into plate tectonics, I got a really unusual reaction. And they thought they, oh, we know this. I, you know, we know everything there is to know about plate tectonics. And so I wrote a bunch of questions and then flipped them back to the students and said, all right, well, what do you think about these? If you know plate tectonics, do these kinds of questions then make sense? Are you able to apply what you know about plate tectonics then to our planet? And the answer was a resounding no. They didn't, they didn't, <laughs> no. <laughs> had no idea. They didn't what to do, do very well on the questions, huh? <laughs> no, but, but which is totally okay, right? It's, it's, uh, they had the rudimentary understanding of the boundaries and, and the features that you get at the boundaries and maybe some of the actions that happen. And that's great, right? Well, we can then take that and use it to make our world make more sense because plate tectonics is just this really broad, overarching thing. Yeah. And, I, I want to interject this, Chris, because, you know, I was initially, as we've talked about, resistant to this idea, but you were right. You turned <laughs> me around. This is really, really a great idea. And it's actually, you know, when we were talking about designing our Camp Geo conversational textbook that uh, people can go to, there's the link in the show notes there. But when we were talking about the sort of structure, the layout of that. What order should we put things in? Where do we put plate tectonics mm -hmm. in this? You know, we put it pretty high up. It's not the first thing, but it's near there because we kind of have, you have to understand some of the basic terms before we talk about plate tectonics, but plate tectonics is inextricably linked to every other topic in geoscience, right? It, it controls how sediment evolves. So there's all these things that feed into plate tectonics. It is sort of the fabric that ties our understanding of our planet together. Yeah. Right. And you, you were talking about order I think that in an intro geology like course, one of the first things you have to do is minerals. Then you have to go right into rocks, the igneous, metamorphic, and sedimentary rocks. Once you're there, you have the foundation then to dive into plate tectonics. And that's why we kind of put it high up on that priority list when we started doing this podcast. And so that's a great lead in into the last two episodes that we did in this So You Think You Know Plate Tectonics series. We talked about really igneous rocks, a variety of igneous rocks in the first episode, then some sedimentary and metamorphic rocks in the second episode. So if you want to kind of catch up in that theme, go back to those episodes or go to the Camp Geo link 
and and learn about the basic minerals and rocks and then plate tectonics and then come back to this episode and kind of test your knowledge because that's what we're doing right now chris and today we're going to go into planetary tectonics which is kind of where i exist in my research so it's kind of near and dear to my heart here of like these questions about how has plate tectonics evolved over earth history how does it function or not function on other planets like there's some really deep-seated planetary science questions that are built into this that are near and dear to me so uh, i'm excited about this one yeah two things that i want to mention here real quick before we jump in one is i i bet you i wonder i'm I'm going to ask you a question actually jesse when you started your research in the northwest territories did you ever consider that this is where your interest would go, the direction that you would go? I mean, you were just doing research (laughs) on super old rocks at the point. You didn't really know why you were doing what you're doing. Is that right? No. I mean, that's exactly right. When I started a master's, I think this is probably a a similar, similar for most people. When you start a master's, you don't really know like why you're doing the things you're doing. You kind of trust your supervisor to sort of have the big picture questions (laughs) in mind. I was excited to go fly around and float planes and go way up in the remote North and look at old rocks. I mean, that sounded cool to me, right? So you're right. I had really no idea that of what the big picture questions were. And now that's the motivating factor. It's still fun to go fly around in float planes. Not as fun as it used to be, but the big motivator is like answering these questions about earth. So great. That's question. right. And you know, which I think is, is an important thing for us to come to understand. Right. But you and I had some deep conversations about this very thing because it's important to you. And, and it's always been important to you to do important things. You know, like in, and we had this discussion about, you know, you said, Chris, what the hell, who, who cares when plate tectonics began on this planet? And we, we, you know, we sat on my front porch and had a few beers and, and talked about this many times. And it's just really cool to see like the direction that it's taken you. And, and now you're fully vested in it and comfortable with the, yeah, you know what? We need to know this. This is important. Um, just kind of it's come full circle it's an interesting you know space i i would say that i still on a sort of very deeply personal level i still struggle with some of the relevance of this like it, it is not the most immediately concerning to society of when plate tectonics started on earth for instance right it's extremely interesting to me personally i, I love the question i like all the 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 sort of unknowns in the question that are built into the question but it's still you know part of what motivates me in research is I also have to have something else that's more societally relevant, a research direction that is not just this question about when did plate tectonics start, right? So it's always a balance <laughs> like everything. And, and frankly, I sometimes still struggle with that. Uh, but but having it be sort of one direction of a research portfolio is where I've landed to sort of <laughs> make me happy and stay fulfilled in that. So Anyways, it's a really, really interesting, important question as far as understanding our Earth and just a totally cool, like sort of like mind blowing thing to think, wait, we might not have had plate tectonics at some point in Earth history. And and how did that develop? (laughs) Like, it's totally cool. That's right. I think so, too. And I think it's important, but we can talk about that later on. But before we begin with the questions, I want to just maybe mention that maybe it's a good idea when we ask the question to push pause and think about how you would answer it. You know, we have a lot of different listeners with a lot of different backgrounds, and we have 
gotten a ton of feedback from this email questions and responses to this kind of series that we're doing. So I'm curious about that. If you hear us ask the question, push pause, think about how you would answer it and then resume listening, of course, and see how we go about it. Not that we're, yeah, right. Because there's very few answers here that are exclusively right. You know, that there's a lot of potential good answers here and some potential sort of less good answers, but yeah, push pause and reach out to us. You can find us on all the social medias at planet geocast. You can send us an email planet geocast at gmail.com or go to our website planetgeocast.com there you can kind of find out more information about us listen to all the past episodes subscribe and uh, support us as well and also the last thing if you kind of are struggling with some of the terms that we're covering here in this podcast or in this series our camp geo is is sort of designed for that so you can go there you can listen to it's what we're calling conversational textbook we have images of the rocks the minerals the processes we're uploading really cool new schematics to that all the time we're getting some really cool graphics made Um, and so you can go to that it's the first link in the show notes and there you can kind of bolster your background knowledge before diving into some of these pretty complicated questions about plate tectonics, Chris. So with that, let's get started here with the first question that I think you wrote this one initially is what would earth look like if plate tectonics was not an active process? So what would the earth look like if plate tectonics was not active? And this is a really cool question. So where did your mind go when you were writing this? And maybe what did some of your students say to this answer? I'd be curious. Um, I did not get a good reaction from them on this question. In other words, they, they (laughs) really, this is something that they hadn't even thought of, you know? And so that makes it difficult just from the onset. Like this was never on their radar. So that was a difficult one, but we live on an amazing planet. I mean, it is just exceedingly beautiful. And you know, that's one of the reasons why you and I are in geology. Let's be honest, right? This gives us a one of the best excuses on the planet to go and see cool geology. Right. And we almost and on always, that note, we can go, we can, we get to experience those beautiful places in a whole new way. Cause we get to look at the rocks and sort of understand what's going on, even at a basic level, even with just a basic geology understanding, you right. get to appreciate beautiful areas in a completely different way than other people do. Anyway. That's right. You can't think about words you don't know. Right. And so the more you know about geology, the more you're able to like think about the world that's around us. And that's really what you and I get excited about. So if we're going to go to see really cool geology, almost always, not always, but almost it involves some sort of mountains, right? And mountains are almost always formed due to some sort of plate tectonic activity. And so if I'm going to summarize it in a really simplistic way, where does my mind go? Our planet is gorgeous because of plate tectonics. We have the mountains, we have these, you know, rivers and valleys and everything in between, largely because of plate tectonics. So I guess the inverse of that would be that if, if to answer the question directly, if there was no plate tectonics, the earth would not be beautiful in your kind of answer to this question or where your mind goes. Is that the idea? Yeah. I I don't want to make any enemies here, but (laughs) if you take a (laughs) Mars people and Venus people cover your ears. (laughs) (laughs) No, but like if you think of a place that is a long ways away from any kind of tectonic activity um, and is relatively quite flat and to me geologically kind of boring. I think of places like Nebraska or, you know, sometimes like Florida and Florida's got the, <laughs> oh, I, see where you're going. I didn't mean to offend anybody like that, but, um, they're not, 
to me the most geologically exciting areas and it's because they are so far removed from any plate tectonics they haven't been glaciated um and so you just end up with just i don't know bland flat topography you know (laughs) not much yeah, that's right. And you always phrase this, Chris, as like there's two forces, the forces that push things up, which is uh, plate tectonics, and the forces that knock things down, which is erosion on our planet. And if you stopped plate tectonics, sort of this is kind of the, a little bit the way my mind goes when we discuss this question of removing plate tectonics from Earth, is that if you just stop plate tectonics, stop pushing things up, then the only process you have is pulling things down. And you're going to knock things down, you're going to erode everything to just at or right around sea level is sort of where erosion is trying to get the land surface is to get it under the water or right near there. And so, you know, once that happens and you don't have anything built up anymore, we have a very different planet and it will evolve in a very different manner um, from that point forward as well, too. And then the only kind of tectonic activity or, or resembling tectonic activity that I can think of without the traditional mechanisms of tectonics would be isostic adjustment, right? You know, if you take these mountains and you remove the the mass that's on them, then the mantle below is going to respond by uplifting them, at least until they've lost enough mass where you don't get isostasy anymore. And you get the same thing with deposition, right? We have this going on with the Mississippi River, for instance, when it empties into the Gulf of Mexico, the weight of that sediment causes that delta to sink. And then that allows for more deposition, which causes it to sink and so on. So you get this kind of isostasy, which can be episodic. You can have earthquakes and seismicity associated with that, but it's not really plate tectonics. But I think like that's what we would be reduced to eventually. Let me just build on that, Chris, because that's a great point and a great description of this isostic adjustment kind of thing, because I think it's important when we're talking about this plate tectonic process, especially in the context of other planets and other options, it's good to really think about what are the other options? So plate tectonics is the Earth's surface is broken up into discrete plates. So we have tectonic plates. They migrate around. We've got the North America plate. We've got the Pacific plate. The Juan de Fuca plate's almost gone. You know, we have all these different tectonic plates that are interacting with each other. They're moving horizontally. So most of the movement is horizontal in these plates. Now, if you remove that, if you say there is no plate tectonics, the question is what else could there be? And really what we're talking about is what we call a stagnant lid planet is one sort of other category of non-plate tectonic planets, which Mars is one of them. The moon is one of them. And this is just, you have a single lithospheric plate that covers the whole planet. And so what you're describing is this lithospheric or lithostatic adjustment. It's basically all vertical motion. And, And that's the only thing that's going on. There's very little like horizontal motion going on. And there could be a little bit, but not a ton. And so you get these sort of, um, these bulges maybe that are forming, but it's all kind of vertical up and down movement, not horizontal where plates are sinking down and diving down underneath of other plates at subduction zones. So I I just want to kind of level set on sort of what the other alternatives are for a non-plate tectonic planet, basically. Right. And you bring up a good point. I mean, uh, really, the only thing that we can look to are the other planets that we are close enough for us to study kind of in detail, right? And that leads us to the next question, or a sub-question of this, really, is about Mars. Mars has all, all of our solar system's largest volcanoes, the biggest one being Olympus Mons. And it is unbelievably hard to imagine huge. <laughs> it's right? so I big. Mean, 
So that's the biggest volcano in the solar system. And the question is, well, why does a planet that doesn't have plate tectonics, which we tend to think of as the mechanism for generating magma, right? Why does it then have these absolutely enormous volcanoes? So push pause on that a second and think about it, right? Like if it doesn't have plate tectonics, we do, you'd think we have the biggest volcanoes, but actually the answer lies in that because we have plate tectonics, our volcanoes never get to be that magnitude. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. This is a, and a really kind of fundamentally interesting one is why are they there, right? So I'm going to start, maybe I could, Chris, take the first half of this answer and, and then you can, I think, build on it. And I think I know where you might go with this this question. So first of all, we have to think of why is there volcanism? Why is there melting going on in Mars, right? Like if it's a stagnant lid planet, it's got one lid, the lithosphere is all one piece covering the whole planet. There's actually something really important that we have to consider and that's heat. Heat has to get out. Heat is trying to escape this planet, right? And basically what we've done is we've taken a heat blanket, the lithosphere being a heat blanket, and we've just covered the whole planet in a single heat blanket. I want to interject something a second, Jesse, because I want you to explain for everybody why there is this heat source. You said why it can't get out, but why is there a heat source there? Yeah, so there's sort of three ways or there's three sources of heat in a planet in a planet like Mars, at least first is just accretionary heat. So this is heat left over from when the planet formed. A lot of that gravitational energy of things colliding together is stored as heat in the planet. And, and so it's hot inside of it. The second one is radioactive decay. So there is uranium, thorium, and potassium in Mars, in the interior of Mars. And as those elements decay away, they release energy, which becomes heat. And so that heat has to escape as well, or is trying to escape. And the third one is, um, we don't quite have a great idea of the interior picture of Mars, but at least on earth, the crystallization of the core is releasing heat. So the liquid outer core, when crystals form, they release heat, latent heat of crystallization. So they actually are pushing heat and there's heat coming out of earth's core into the mantle as the inner core is crystallizing. So that probably is going on to some degree at Mars as well, or it did in the past at least. Maybe I can interject something with that, the, you know, the heat from crystallization. It's, it's like this evaporation is a cooling process, right? So when liquid molecules evaporate, the result is that it's a cooling process. And we feel this when we, you know, our, our bodies get wet from sweat or, you know, just got out of a pool or something like that. Evaporation happens and it, we feel that almost immediately the cooling process of that. Well, crystallization is the opposite of evaporation. So condensation is a warming process then. It's the opposite of what we feel when we get out of a pool. So it's a warming process and that's the heat that you're talking about. Exactly. That's a great, great okay. analogy, Chris. Absolutely great analogy. So, the, you know, why is the planet melting? Why is there volcanism? Well, the interior of the planet's solid, but it's it's heating up because there's all this heat and it's got this heat blanket over it that can't escape. The lithosphere, the single lid, the stagnant lid is not allowing heat out. So that heat builds up and eventually will start melting and it'll do this partial melting. We've talked about this, uh, you know, ad nauseum on Camp Geo because it's such an important thing, but it starts this partial melting, which produces magma and that stuff wants to escape too. And so it'll eventually puncture through this stagnant lid. It'll build up and kind of create a volcano that breaks through the single lithospheric plate. And then what happens from there, Chris? Why does it get so big? Yeah, that's the whole thing. You did a really good job, by the way, of explaining how the heat goes and it, it creates its own plumbing network, right? It, it Just for whatever reason, you get this center where there's melting that's taken place below the lid and it finds a way to the surface. 
Well, because there's no tectonics, the plates then there, it's one rigid lid that has a plumbing system leading to the surface because the plates aren't moving. The magma just keeps erupting out of that one eruptive center. Whereas on earth, it creates an avenue, but then the plates move and it creates a new avenue and the plates move and you just keep getting this. So you get volcanism on Mars that just piles up and piles up and piles up. And over time, then you get these just absolutely massive volcanoes because they're not going to be strung out in a chain like you would get here on Earth. Right. And you use this great analogy in class, Chris, which I've stolen (laughs) shamelessly, is that you hold a lighter, you have a little hand lighter, you light it, you hold a piece of paper over it. And on Earth, that piece of paper is the tectonic plate and it's moving. And so think of Hawaii. There's a hot spot, which is the lighter and a piece of paper, which is moving over that hot spot, which creates a linear scar in that piece of paper. And also on top of that, it would be in our analogy here, we'd be piling up lava on top. And in Hawaii, we have this chain of volcanoes. Olympus Mons, you're just holding the lighter underneath a piece of paper and that paper is not moving. So you just burn a single big hole in the piece of paper, right? And it piles up and all that lava piles up and creates a huge volcano. So that's a, a really great explanation, Chris, of how this, or I guess of why Mars has the solar system's largest volcanoes and Earth does not, which is an interesting juxtaposition there. Right on. So let's move on to the next question, which I got a I'm a little worried about you in this because this is your thing. Um, The next question is, you know, Jesse, I'm looking at you over your shoulder and you have these Harvard classics there, which I gave you a long time ago. I'm, I'm starting to think that you need to start reading more of those and less of your science papers, because every time we get together now, you come up with these weird things like, oh yeah, I read a paper on this. And I don't know. I think you need to become a little bit more well-rounded, Jesse. So you, you I'm start a little reading, bit just too pick any weeds, one of those huh? books. And <laughs> All right. So here we go. Is there granite? On other planets? That's the next question. That's the question. Okay, so push pause. Think about that. And if you haven't listened to sort of part one in this series, you know, we talked about how plate tectonics helps explain the formation of granite on Earth. And so in that episode, we kind of alluded to the fact that plate tectonics might be intimately related with granite production. So the question then is, is there granite on other planets? Chris, what did you think about? Well, I think I wrote this question. So what did you think about? Where did your mind go with this? Well, we don't know of granite on any of the other planets in our solar system, you know, Mars on down to to Mercury. So there's no granite. There's a ton of basalt, but no granite. Okay. And my question went to silicates right away. The silicate minerals, you know, the sheet silicates and the framework silicates are the most abundant mineral group on the crust, on the continental crust, I should say, of the earth. And so that's where my mind went. And, and it, interesting, when I saw that you wrote this question, yours went a different direction. You right away <laughs> went to water, you know, which I want to talk about because I want to hear your answer because I have some thoughts on this about water. So you have this this punchy kind of title up there. I think it comes from a paper that you read. It's called no water, no granites, no oceans, and no continents. So why don't you talk about this a little bit and why water is important in the formation of granite? Yeah. So that title, no water, no granites, no oceans, no continents kind of flows together. I mean, it says if there's no water, then there's no granites. Therefore, if there's no oceans on earth, then there's no continents on earth. And 
it's mostly pretty accurate. So why is water tied to the formation of granites is the first question here. Well, the way that melting happens, we've talked about minerals and rocks that have water in them. And we don't mean like a water molecule, like in a pore space in the rock. We mean a mineral group in the rock that has an OH group hanging on the end of it or an OH group that's part of the crystal structure. So that's for our intents and purposes, water in the rock is hydrous minerals, minerals that are hydrated and rocks that have hydrated minerals in them melt at much lower temperatures than rocks that do not have hydrated minerals in them. So if you try and melt the mantle, which has very little water in it as default, you try and melt the mantle, it's really hard. You got to get to high temperatures at any given pressure to melt the mantle. If you add water to that system, you can melt it at much lower temperatures and much lower pressures at the same sort of conditions, right? So adding water to the mix makes things melt quicker. It also kind of changes the composition of melts that are produced. So the partial melting happens at different pressures and temperatures, but also the melt composition that is produced changes dramatically as well. So true granites, like real granites on earth, which has a specific definition. It has potassium, feldspar, sodium, feldspar. You're getting into the weeds there, Doc. Hey, okay, you're all right, getting I'll into the up. weeds here, Doc. Let's <laughs> all right, all right, come back, come back to reality. All right, all the right. main point well, here can is I that- just... All right, go ahead. Well, I can, let me <laughs> let me just try and make the connection here to the end of this statement. So, if, so water helps is really instrumental to producing granite, and therefore oceans on Earth are where all this hydration happens, where a lot of water is mixing with rocks, is interacting with rocks. So, the idea there at the the later part is, if you didn't have oceans, we wouldn't have continents, which kind of ties that uh, comes full circle there. So, okay, so two things I want to say, Jesse. One is that when Water is involved in melting. You called it partial melting. And the general rule is, is like this. So ultra mafic, which means ultra rich in iron and magnesium, the composition of the mantle. If you partially melt that, you generate a magma that is less mafic than what you started with. So now you go from ultra mafic to mafic. If you partially melt that, you go to intermediate in composition. And if you partially melt that, you go to a felsic end member composition, which is granite. Okay. So that's the general rule of, of what you were just describing there in a detailed kind of way. The second thing that I want to say is though, both Mars and Venus we are exceedingly confident that both of them had water at one point, yet there's no granite. So do you have a thought about that? It's a great question. I would kind of wiggle out of it and say that we don't know that we don't have granite. Like we haven't found a ton of granite on either planet. Now on Mars, it kind of goes back to this resurfacing question or this volcanism question. Like there could be an argument, especially on Venus, we'd need to have a look at the interior of the planet. We'd need to drill down and evaluate is the middle part of the crust, does it have granite in there or not? Because you can envision a scenario where there were some sort of continents, pseudo continents around, and then the planet sort of died from a plate tectonic standpoint, became a stagnant lit planet, and then it got resurfaced. The surface is all basalt because of this sort of heat pipe volcanism that's pumping stuff out like Olympus Mons and just resurfaced the planet. So it's an mm -hmm. open question, I would say, particularly for Venus okay. about how much granite. Now, I, I want to say one thing. There are andesites on these other planets. There's little tiny fragments of andesite that have been found on Mars. And actually there's one that's been found on an extinct 
protoplanet, like what's called a chondritic protoplanet. And it is 4.56 billion years old. And it's a little andesite clast fragment in a meteorite. And it has an andesite composition, which on earth we think that's a subduction zone volcano, <laughs> but on other planets, it has some chemical differences that say, okay, it's not a, it's, it's not an andesite. Like we think it forms, but it is an andesitic composition. Interesting. So maybe the water wasn't around long enough to distill it all the way. Maybe is that, is that a thought that's out there? Or Th that's, not? that's yes. E either the water's not around long enough, or we have, uh, this process that we've talked about on camp geo is fractional crystallization. We talked about Bowen's reaction series previously in planet geo here. We have an episode on Bowen's reaction series, where if you take a magma, early form minerals start to crystallize out, which changes the composition of the magma and it gets more evolved. So you can actually produce andesite. If you crystallize something like 80% of a basalt, what you're left with is andesite. So you can produce small volumes of andesite on any planetary body, really, if you have a big basaltic magma chamber, just by this Bowen's reaction series, fractional crystallization process, but it does not produce huge continents like we think of on earth. So there, there is a difference here, I guess, in the volumes that we're speaking about. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, uh, anything else that you want to add to this discussion then about water, granites, oceans, like what about what I originally said to my question where my mind went to the silicates themselves? Like is earth unique? And you know, like I think about this, that maybe we should do an episode, Jesse, on the condensation sequence in planet formation. Just, just that oh, yeah. one topic, you know, I think that be, especially with your deep background in geochemistry, I think you would have a ton to add to this and I can just kind of sit in the background and direct you and keep you out of the weeds too bad, you know, too much. But <laughs> I think it'd be a really cool topic that would, that kind of follows with what makes earth so unique. But what do you think? The, the silicates, um, what's your thought? I think you're, you're exactly right. And it's first really, of all, tell us what a silicate is a second. A silicate is a mineral that has a silica a SI as a primary constituent phase. So it, it, you know, that is a building block for silicate minerals. Usually it's an SIO four bond as a silica tetrahedron bond. And then you, you add some other cations to it to make a mineral calcium, magnesium, iron, something like that. So yes. that's the bulk of planet earth. We have this core part, which is metal. And then we have the silicate part, which is the mantle and the crust and the, the lithosphere. Most of our planets in our solar system have that same sort of breakdown. We have cores and we have silicate parts of the planets. Now that's because our solar system has generally the same composition. And so if you form rock from our solar system, it's going to be like a silicate based rock. There is some pretty active research in the exoplanets, people looking, mainly astronomers who look at other stars and look at other planets around other stars, and they see that the star has a different, what's called metallicity, a different ratio of silica and iron and magnesium in, in those different proportions. And the idea is that you would generate planets around those stars that have different proportions of iron, magnesium, silica, calcium to what our solar system has. So for our intents and purposes, most people who study silicates in the sol our solar system kind of use earth as a good analogy for the rest of the planets. But that does not necessarily mean that other planets in other solar systems, exoplanets have the same process. So I think Chris, your question is too many is variables. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Too many variables. But I think your question is a great one. When we start to consider exoplanets that are orbiting other stars, we really have to consider our silicates, the main mineral group, or are they a little bit more of a, a, a smaller, you know, a, a less important mineral group than they are on our planet, for instance. Interesting. Okay. 
Yeah, great question. I think I get it. <laughs> I'm not I sure. Mean, it gets I'm pretty. Not, uh, so it gets pretty yeah, arm wavy. It, it gets kind of like this yeah. plate tectonics discussion, where like if we don't uh, think about what we know on Earth, then how do we think about it? Like, there's so many other options out there. You know, you can make a soup. Uh, you, uh, you can make a recipe using the periodic table and generate some random compositions. How relevant are they to other planets, like in other solar systems? It's kind of it gets really complicated really quick, and there's very few constraints. So it kind of gets um, difficult to understand for sure. Well, that leads us into our last question, which is a good way to wrap up this episode, I think, which is why does plate tectonics make Earth a beautiful planet? And I think, you know, I think we've already kind of covered it, but it's a good summary, right? To me, it's undeniable that plate tectonics makes Earth beautiful because I love the mountains and so do you. And it, it obviously then we have mountains on this planet because of plate tectonics, but we also have these massive, deep, impressive valleys because of plate tectonics too. It's because we have this really, well, first of all, because we have an atmosphere, you have to have that to have the weathering and erosion part of it. You have to have an atmosphere. Okay. The uplift, which accelerates weathering and erosion. And the, like one of the things that makes mountains so beautiful is how caught up they are, how jagged and carved they are. Right. And that's because of water, whether that be ice water or running water. This is what makes mountains truly beautiful. In my opinion, glaciated mountains are, you know, they're just amazing. Right. And so all of this is intertwined with, you know, you get accelerated weathering and erosion if you have plate tectonics rapidly uplifting mountains. You can't separate them. Absolutely. And Chris, that really sort of points right in the direction that I was thinking with this it, answer to this question of why does plate tectonics make Earth a beautiful planet is that plate tectonics makes Earth a habitable planet. <laughs> plate tectonics is instrumental in keeping our ocean and keeping an atmosphere intact and has all these really important feedback loops that maintain a, a moderate climate. The only reason we're here is because in large part, plate tectonics has been operative on our planet for a long time. So that's kind of where I went is like, we wouldn't even be able to see it's a beautiful planet unless we had plate tectonics going on, you know? So, um, can you give all me, the I want to, I want to, I want to take that a little bit further, Jesse. Can you provide an example of why that's the case? Like, that's a really interesting thought. And it's one that I had not, I had, it didn't occur to me. So the main thing there's, there's feedback loops. Like the main thing that controls climate is the, the sort of CO2 content of our atmosphere with our kind of gas makeup of our solar system. And so CO2 content controls the, the temperature of the planetary surface. And when you push mountains up, what happens is CO2 is drawn down. We've talked about this before the carbon cycle. We've talked about how we get salty water and stuff like that. Chemical erosion pulls CO2 out of the atmosphere by making rocks and, and dissolving rocks and putting them in the ocean basin. Now, if carbon's going down that way, what's putting it up into the atmosphere? Well, carbon is going up in most volcano chains. So volcanoes are outgassing CO2 in this active feedback loop. So we have this, this sort of modulating effect. And you can think of it this way. What happens if I just increase a bunch of volcanic activity and I put a bunch of CO2 into the atmosphere? Well, if we do that, weathering's going to happen faster. So more weathering means that we're going to start drawing down CO2 more rapidly and it's going to go into the ocean. So we have to have oceans. We have to have uplift plate tectonics to regulate CO2 in this manner. And it's a feedback loop. But we can why, kind of bounce up why to will some extremes and down. Why will weathering accelerate if there's more CO2 in the atmosphere? Because the reactions will go. So if you just 
it's, you think of it like a basic chemical chemical reaction. If you put more product in or more reactant in, it'll drive the reaction faster in the other direction. So if you have a bunch of rust forming on your truck, um, and you know, let's say you suddenly clean off a bunch of rust. Well, that reaction will happen faster because you, you cleaned it off. And so there's new surface that can be rusted, right? Or if you put a bunch of oxygen, you put it in an oxygen chamber, that rusting is going to happen really fast. So as soon as you add more reactant or product, it drives the reaction in the other way, the speed of it. Does that sort okay. of make sense there? Yeah, that, yeah, you did, that, that really drove it home. I just have another idea. I think this is a really good idea, and I don't want any pushback on this. I think that we need to do a series. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a yes man now, Chris. I'm just a sycophant who just goes with whatever you say. <laughs> I think that you and I need to do a series on the carbon cycle. Oh, like, yeah, that sounds it's great. So big, totally. It's, it's too big of a topic. We can't do this in one or two episodes, but we could do no, a little mini not. series on the carbon cycle. Uh, what do you think? That's a good idea, isn't it? I think it sounds great. I think it sounds great. And you know what? We're gonna t we're probably gonna tie it up with our carbon cycle chapter on Camp Geo that we're putting together pretty soon. I'm guessing. So, um, yeah, I think it sounds true. great. That's true. Yeah. Okay, good deal. All right, All right man. Well, we'll put we're gonna books. pick up with uh, some more questions, and and you're gonna have your work cut out for your next episode talking about when plate tectonics <laughs> started on Earth, keeping that's me right. out of the weeds. I think so. <laughs> that's, that's right. Episode four in this series is going to start with the question about when did plate tectonics start on Earth and why is this an important question to answer? This is Jesse's research. It's Ben's research. It's going to, it's, you know, it's, it's consumed massive parts of his life. So he has a lot to say. Oh, I'll do far my job. Too much. I'm, I'm good at it. Yeah. So. <laughs> all right, man. Hey, that's a wrap. All you right. can follow us on all the social medias at Planet Geocast. Send us an email, planetgeocast at gmail.com and go to our website, planetgeocast.com, where you can subscribe you can follow us you can support us we always appreciate that and um yeah leave us a review and a rating we really appreciate those still helps the algorithm and gosh check out camp geo we we love hearing feedback on that a couple of you have gone there have found some sort of minor errors in our labeling and we really appreciate that uh, sort of feedback so go check it out and let us know what you think also share planet geo with somebody else that really helps us out too and that's yeah we love that we love that all right cheers peace